Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Growing up happens in a heartbeat. One day you're in diapers, the next day you're gone. But the memories of the childhood stays with you for the long haul. I remember a place, a town, a house, like other houses, a yard like other yards, on a street like a lot of other streets. And the thing is, after all these years, I look back with wonder. You may recognize that from the Wonder Years and the final episode that aired in 1993. It's important to keep looking forward, but while looking in the rearview mirror, I was struck by the family unit that we saw in that series and the one I grew up with. The one that was centered on the dinner table and everyone sitting down to eat for dinner. Many of the things from that era are gone. Playing out in the streets on your own or with friends is a thing of the past replaced by organized and supervised events and sports activities. That dinner with your parents rarely takes place in houses now, and when it does, many times it's interrupted by technology. The spam callers and telephone sales organizations target that time in the vain hope of catching a live person foolish enough to answer the phone from an unknown number, or a number at least in first appearances that's in your neighborhood. It is not, of course, but they do try. But social media and the mobile phone have really done a number on home life and conversation, not only distracting everyone with the constant alerts and notifications, but also painting a picture that suggests everyone else is living this perfect life, compounding a rate of misery and depression that is quite frankly jaw-dropping. Nearly one in five people in the US live with mental health, and that rate has increased post-pandemic in children. We see similar rates with some data suggesting one in three teenagers reported feeling sad or hopeless, and nearly one in five seriously considered attempting suicide. And if you're a parent like me and you find yourself attempting to deal with these issues, you will likely have found that the services and support to help deal with these crises, even if available, may not be in a timely fashion. What is a parent to do? Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Monica Roots, who's the co-founder, president, and chief medical officer of Bend Health. Hi, Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we're talking about mental health and specifically mental health uh, in adolescents, children, you know, the young adults in, in our world. And 
you know, the pandemic influenced and impacted a lot of things in our world. But if there was one thing to call out that we saw a huge problem in terms of access that I think was there before, amplified even more by the pandemic, was the ability for children to access proper, appropriate mental health. Is that true? And where are we now? Absolutely. As we look even at statistics, we see that previously mental health conditions were one in five. But as the CDC recently pointed out, in the time of the pandemic, persistent thoughts of sadness and hopelessness in teenagers increased to 42% and in fact, 57% in females. I think that just shows that the stress of the situation was so significant. And to your point, without the access, these individuals really needed some sort of outlet and they didn't have it. So this is where we're at now. So let's just focus on that for a second. So not only was it bad before, I mean, that's a shocking statistic, given that, you know, if you accept the premise that the world is a fantastic place, has improved quality of life, all, all of those things that, you know, we hear, but despite that, we see this huge level of unhappiness and highly significantly more so in um, uh, the girls, the women. Why do you think that is? I think it's important for us as adults to take a step back and really think about what these kids and teens are going through. It's very different from when we grew up. They are seeing issues of civil unrest. There's a threat of nuclear war. There is racial unrest. There's the pandemic of isolation. And let's face it, they are now thinking that mass shootings in school is something that may happen to them. And even more than that, we see the role of technology. It's not uncommon that parents may be very stressed. And when it comes to the dinner table, they just want to scroll through their phone because they're exhausted. And the kid is too. But what happens there is that they're not getting that connection, that time to really decompress from their day, be able to say, hey, this is what's going on and get advice from their parents. And of course, I think there's also this drive for perfectionism. That has really set very high bars for our kids and teens, and it's difficult for them to feel like a mistake is okay. And so as we think about what they're going through, in addition to social media and a lot of information they're exposed to without experience and wisdom, they're going through a lot. So you you bring up something that, you know, and I know I'm going to date myself and I'm going to mention... Uh, uh, Kevin or or Fred Savage from the Wonder Years. And, you know, I grew up in an era sort of watching that and thinking about, you know, it was a small family unit. And that was exactly what happened around the table. And you highlight this, this sort of focus on social media. I know that's a whole issue on its own. Um, piling on essentially problems that you're right, we we just didn't have, we had better sort of support and infrastructure. So given all that, I mean, these are just appalling statistics. How do we approach this from a point of, a starting point that says there's barely any access to these resources that are essential to try and address some of this terrible decline in mental health? I think that was really the 
feeling behind creating Bent Health. It was actually started around the time of the pandemic. We continuously saw solutions that were trying to address their needs, but weren't actually created for kids, teens, and their families. So as we started to think about how do we address this, it's really around the family units. Kids and teens are highly dependent on their ecosystem, their environment. It's not just, just the parents, but it's also the points of access, pediatricians, schools. And so therefore, the foundation of what Bend Health is really trying to do is collaboration. Really being able to treat that child or take care of that family in the ecosystem that they live in every day, which is their home, their school, their pediatrician, and their environment. Yeah, so I I, I got to say that resonates with me. I mean, I was uh, uh, there was a part of me that was going to push back and say, "What well, you think uh, that the kids are not independent of their their families?" But you know, of course they are. And you know, it reminds me of the recurring thing: just take away the phone. I've heard I, I can't tell you how many times I've been told that. And you know, the reality of this is, of course, it's very challenging, and you can't see these things in isolation. I think what's really intriguing to me is that. As an organization, you were founded in the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that we see about you know successful companies are ones that are founded in crises. And this was certainly a crisis. What were the elements that came together to bring this organization to fruition? I think really it was around the idea of meeting people where they're at. Let's face it, I used to have a private practice. And what I used to see is that a child would come in, dress very well. In some ways, it was like seeing them in a little bit of a silo. They were on their best behavior because their parents wanted to be on their best behavior. They may have been late. And so they show up very, very stressed. And in fact, don't decompress during our session. And so they can't really get the value of it. So really meeting them where they're at was a lot of things. One being able to meet them at their pediatrician's office. That's where they're showing up. They're asking for help and thinking that there may be access, but there isn't any. Also focusing on the schools. How do we support their mental health in the school? It's much more sometimes than social emotional learning. It's really helping them from their ability to adapt to their environment, be able to have stress mitigation tools and be able to have that support from their teachers and their loved ones. And then thinking of home. You learn so much in digital care and seeing them on, on, online in their environment. Is it chaotic? Is there a lot of stress? Being able to bring in their siblings, you take care of them in their actual environment. They have the best chance to actually get better. So it's really the foundation of collaboration and meeting them where they're at. So let's think about each of those because they're all quite different in terms of the context. And, you know, I imagine that maybe you just accept whatever the, the first point of contact is, but perhaps traverse around. And, you know, some of the things that you describe in terms of, you know, seeing in, it was like the actual real visit of the physician into the home. It was revelatory to discover that, you know, this individual that, as you rightly point out, comes in dress, they're immaculate, but you walk into their home and see this complete chaos. You see that instantly with virtual care. So there's a real positive to that. Um, was that one of the elements to this that you, you, because you were able to incorporate that in a way that wasn't possible? Absolutely. It's so fun to see a child in their environment. For example, with a child, they have their stuffy, for example, 
they probably don't bring that to the appointment at the clinic, but they have it at home. So we can use that to play for him to talk to a stuffy about how he's feeling. And you can watch that. And also the parents can see you doing that and they can use that technique during the week. Also consider teens having that space of and connection, but privacy and rapport is really important for them. So therefore being in their space at home is really valuable. But for us as clinicians, we can take a lot of cues from what else you see in their home. Do you see a lot of posters up? That's a conversation element. Do you see uh, a lot of technology? Let's talk about it. Are they seeing you in the dark? That's an important thing to know. It tells you about their mental health and how they're feeling. So there are non-verbal things that you learn through virtual care to really connect to these kids. And once again, you know, you hear a lot of things too. It's not uncommon for me to be talking to someone and then I hear their sibling yelling at their mom about something in the background. That's another cue, right? It's really important to bring these things into the context of their mental health and their environment. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you, you sort of cover a, a couple of the areas that I think essential. So seeing and, you know, all of those elements that contribute. But one of the negatives in my mind is, is something that you mentioned that's critical, especially for the teens. But I think it sort of progresses down. I'm not sure where the age is that, you know, this privacy issue cuts in and becomes even more important. But there is, you know, there's some point a, a, a flip over but in some of these households, and with telehealth in particular, or tele-mental health, if we're talking specifics, that can be really challenging. How do you address that? As part of our process, when we're getting to know a family, we ask about something called social determinants of health. It helps us understand about food insecurity. Do they live in a safe environment? But we're also asking about their home environment. Do they have their own personal space? Are they able to talk to us on their own without another person listening in? If they don't, this is why it's so important to connect to other environments. Perhaps they're in an after-school program where they have a room where they can seek care and have that privacy or at school. This is really the connection points with whoever is involved in that child's life that's so important and is a fundamental of what we do. So you you assess those um, local impacts you bring that in but imagine you know i've heard stories of parents in this instance not so much children but you know it would be harder for a child where the mother the only place that they could find any kind of privacy for a regular medical call this this wasn't even mental health was to go into the car outside how do you deal with that for a child who has less Sort of, you know, to your point of that dependency in that unit, how do you approach that? It's really being creative. It's not uh, been unheard of that I will actually ask that teenager, is there a car they can just go and talk to me in so that, you know, we can have that moment, of course, supervised. That is one big element of what we do, which is during our sessions, there has to be a responsible adult nearby. Mm. Emergencies come up things come up. And so it's really important to have that adult nearby. But as part of virtual care, and really, let's face it, medicine, sometimes you have to be creative. And even using a car or a bench outside in the backyard where they feel like there's privacy, maybe what you need to do. 
I, I imagine that your practice and, you know, Bend Health has probably seen some extraordinary stories and, you know, circumstances that would sort of contribute to perhaps, a, 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 you know, a, a collection of images, maybe, to provide a better understanding to the individuals that don't comprehend this, who live in a world that, you know, don't suffer from this. As you traverse across, so you talk about the unit and, you know, obviously seeing the family. One of the areas that's relatively unique, I think the pediatric office is obviously critical to that. That's the, in many instances, the first point of contact is the thing that we most think about, but that's not typically where you see it. Are you partnering with local offices? Is that something that you see as a future uh, potential? Yes. So one of our very close partnerships is the health system and the pediatricians. So we practice something called pediatric collaborative care. This is something that came out of the University of Washington that was really focused on treating adults. We took that model and enhanced it because we made sure that it addressed the family system. But we really want to partner with pediatricians because we so empathize with what they're going through. Parents will show up, raise their hand and say, please, my child has depression. And the next time they can get in to see someone is six months. Six months in the life of a child is an eternity. And so unfortunately, these pediatricians who are put in a situation of fix it now will give them a medication that potentially has severe side effects or a medication they've not been trained to actually prescribe. I've heard these stories from pediatricians where they said, hey, this individual couldn't sleep. I looked up this medication online and I prescribed it. They were never actually trained to prescribe it, but this is a situation we're in. We're in a moment of almost warfare where there's so much crisis and they are coming at it with whatever tool they have, which for pediatricians frequently, unfortunately, is medications. Some of these medications have not even been well tested in kids, but it's the only tool sometimes that they have. And so for us, we really want to partner with a pediatrician so we can support them. That is really the healthcare system partnerships that we do. We come at it from, let us support you. Let us come at this from skills first, not medications first. Let's really think about the skills that we can do to tool these children and teens and families with the things that they need to solve in the moment of crisis that we're in. So I, I for context, I've lived that that six month, just jaw dropping uh, statistic. And, you know, that's not just an eternity for the child, it's an eternity for the parent who is, you know, as concerned and worried, um, you know, and providing something in the immediacy. I imagine that there's, I can't, well, I can't imagine a single pediatric office going, no, no, we're good. I, have you had that experience? I think for them, they usually say, oh my goodness, thank God you're here. We don't know what else to do. Uh, many practitioners are starting to really look at this medical behavioral integration model, which is really this pediatric collaborative care model. Where we come in though, is we can work with practices that have it or don't. The integrated behavioral care model usually is a very short-term model. It's maybe three to five sessions. But what's really different about kids and teens is that to really learn and apply these skills, they need more long-term care. And that's where we come in to really augment and really help the family system. 
So from a pediatric standpoint, I think what we are bringing to them is safety, co-management, and a partner, which is really what they need. So one of the things that concerns me about this as I listen to it is that, I I mean, it's hard to disagree with any of the concepts, but what we hear repeatedly is lack of resources. And, And, you know, in your specialty alone, lack of physicians, lack of clinicians, does this address this or are we still stuck with that same problem? You're right. 70% of counties do not have a child adolescent psychiatrist. And so doing this from a virtual standpoint where we can really spread out resources well, and we come at this from multiple different types of practitioners. We have coaches. Most of therapy for kids is very goal-oriented and skill acquisition. That's what a coach does. At Bend Health, all of these coaches and the individuals that help these kids and teens are all clinically supervised. We think that's really important so that we can continue to make progress. But utilizing coaches and behavioral care managers that may not be licensed, but are supervised and highly trained and highly skilled, therefore leaving the therapist and the psychiatrist for when you really need them is the way we think that scale can be attained to help this crisis that we're in. So augmenting with um, individuals, do you see a a place for augmentation with technology? I mean, technology, let's be clear, is a contributory cause if, you know, put it into a category. But can it help? Is the components to this that you see potential for improvement by augmenting with technology? Yes, and that's what we do. We are not just talk therapy or talk coaching. We come at it from content from assessments, multiple touch points in between every session. It's a much more comprehensive experience than your typical therapy. But if you touch a person every day or every other day to continue to work on those skills, they can get 1% better and continue to get better. Now, will every day be 1% better? Let's face it, sometimes life throws you lemons, right? And it's maybe not the best day. But if we can continue to support in that momentum, even small, moving forward with content and additional technology elements to support along the way. In addition to the coaching and the therapy, we know that we can get these kids better, but it's going to take that comprehensive effort to do so. And I imagine the the last thing from my perspective is that the contribution of that sort of the the whole family unit and the inclusion of the parents. And, you know, you talk about it as skills first and, you know, you, you mentioned stuffy and seeing, just seeing that interaction for the parent, I imagine sort of helps coach them and engage them in ways that maybe they wouldn't ordinarily, but you're now sort of contributing to the overall uh, support of that uh, child. Let's face it. I'm a mom too. Kids don't come with a rule book, right? We really need to bring in everybody we can and raise our children as a village, not as a singular person. I think as parents, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect, but I think that coming in and teaching them the skills that they need for that particular child is the way that the caregiver stress can go down and support that child. And I think it's also important to think that just because you have one child who interacts one way does not mean that that same parenting skill will work for the other children. They're unique. 
And so we think of it as coming at it from a rule book for your particular child. So you can help them as best as you can. I, I can only imagine your household, um, but I, 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 I have my own to consider. Monica, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. While the Wonder Years version of our village no longer exists, there are solutions that can help bring in everybody. We can help to raise our children as a village, not as a singular person. As Monica said, we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves as parents to be perfect, but perfection is not the answer. Add to that the challenges of sufficient resources we have to build a coordinated virtual model that brings the services and support to the families and especially the children where they are. Your better pill to swallow is to learn from these experiences and positive outcomes and work to build a village of care and create a pediatric collaborative care model. The design, tools and resources are out there. It is up to us to bring them to our communities and villages and reverse the distressing trend in mental health in our future generations. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.